Hi, and welcome to the Global Game Changers podcast. I'm James Digby, and I'll be your host for the show where each week we join a special guest and co-host and find out about their journey into tech and hear the stories that led them to where they are now. We'll sit down with startup founders, VCs, leading figures from corporate tech giants and the governmental sector to find out what makes them tick and the quirky memories that they've had along the way so far. For the inaugural show, we've got a very special guest to kick off the Global Game Changers podcast, the founder of Red Hat, Bob Young. This episode was recorded live at Tech Barbecue 2019 with my guest co-host Alex Feldman in a special session where Bob shares with us his secret for building businesses through the definition of your users and customers, along with how being passionate about people can get you further than you think. From the very beginnings of Red Hat through to how the Canadian Premier League got going, it was a fascinating insight into the man himself. Enjoy the conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome. We are live at Tech Barbecue. This is Startup 42 Media. If you don't remember us, it's Alex Feldman and James Digby. Very, very, very excited right now to sit down with Bob Young. You might know him from Red Hat, from Lulu. Um, I don't know what else there is to say. I, I feel like this man needs no introduction. So, so let's just jump right in. Bob. Uh, I just want to jump in there quickly, Bob. I don't think I've ever seen him speechless. So <laughs> this is my first there time in many hours together that he <laughs> seems to be stumped. So... Welcome, Bob. Um, <laughs> as my wife points out to me, I'm not nearly as clever as uh, <laughs> some of my successes make me look. <laughs> they do a good job, right? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we just want to jump in. Can can you let people know who um, a lot of people know about you? But some people can. We want to just get into your background and, and where you're coming from, and go, go as far back as as you want. And really wanted to see the, the evolution of what got you to where you are. Okay, um, so uh, as I put it, the, the two tricks in life to be successful are uh, uh, choose your spouse well, and I was very fortunate to do that. But the other one is choose your parents well. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, did, I, I was particularly fortunate on that one. And, and I come from a long line of entrepreneurial businessmen. So we all know families who produce doctors, and it's multiple generations yeah. of doctors. And other families produce lawyers. My family, going back uh, several generations to the lowlands of Scotland, um, uh, produced entrepreneurial businessmen, uh, tracking back five or six generations now. I feel like we might have the same question on here. What was like the first business that was started (laughs) in, in your family? Like uh, your your great great or whatever yeah great yeah. grandfather. So I believe the original the, the first. I'm one hoping it's whiskey, forget, by the way. No, it was not. <laughs> it, it was a Scottish trading company. They came out. Uh, my great great grandfather came out to Canada, and among other businesses, he started one of Canada's first banks. Uh, but he started in the textile business. Uh, and that was the business that my father uh, was in when he came out of college. That was the mm-hmm. family business. Uh, they, He and his brothers evolved it into the financial services business in Canada. From textiles. Uh, from textiles. Uh, there was no future to textiles in Canada after the war with the, the gap round of tariff reductions. Uh, because Canada was manufacturing textiles to sell into the British Commonwealth. With the decline of the tariff barriers after the war, there wasn't a business. The Americans Mm. could sell into the British Commonwealth as effectively as Canadians could. 
and the Americans had actually had the cotton <laughs> in the first place. <laughs> yeah. So they had a bit of a competitive advantage. So, yeah. uh, Having the actual raw material. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so uh, by the time I started business, my first business uh, was a typewriter rental business. Uh, I bought it. There's a long shaggy dog story there. Uh, but I think of myself as an entrepreneur because unlike my father, who was a really smart guy, uh, I was, you know, the dumbest kid in my class. So, so I spent 16 years in school with the teachers teaching me every year that I'm the dumbest kid in the class. And you were perpetually told this, that you weren't clever enough. And you, no, had you to... could see it. This is back before the days of self-esteem and, okay, yeah. <laughs> and supportive learning. So, yeah, exactly. I, I have a question. Considering yeah. like where your career has led you. Like, are, do you approve the self-esteem movement or, or do you, being the dumbest kid in the class and have no one encourage you in the same way, saw that as, as a real thing that helped push you to, to be the person you are today? Okay, so uh, I don't care about any of it. Like, <laughs> I love that answer. <laughs> I love it. I don't care of the movements. I don't care of the ideology. <laughs> we only get to live once and we as human beings have a responsibility to just figure it out. <laughs> and quit blaming your parents and quit <laughs> blaming your school or your teachers or your classmates. Figure it out. And, and that's uh, the culture <laughs> I came from. And, and I've been blessed with uh, understanding that, that uh, pointing fingers and blaming other people for my problems doesn't get me anywhere. Taking ownership of them at least gives me a fighting shot at figuring yeah. out an answer. Yeah. Does that come from the, the entrepreneurial culture? I'm kind of... Yes. Baking it in, like your parents teaching you, saying, "Hey, actually, you should learn not, you know, do this or do that, but looking at a problem in a particular way and thinking about solving it entrepreneurially." Yeah, there, there's two things in entrepreneur. So, again, the reason these families produce lawyers is around the Sunday dinner table. Mm -hmm. If they're all lawyers, they tend to talk about the law. And they, <laughs> and they talk about it in an interesting, passionate oh. way. And the kids at the table go, whoa, those are really cool stories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so in, in my family, it was always talking about business problems and how they were <laughs> going to solve the problem, yeah. not, not how it was someone else's fault. I mean, they would acknowledge that, ah, the government passed a terrible law and what are we going to do? Yeah. But it was, what are we going to do? How do we mm. operate our business within the constraint that the government might have imposed on the industry? Yeah. And so they, the conversations were always problem-solving conversations. And the other real value that I got in this environment was a customer orientation. As in, it wasn't about you. Mm. You know how, how your, your wives or girlfriends or... Mm. You know, you start rambling on about, I want to do this. And eventually someone, your mom says, sorry, it's not about you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's all, it actually isn't about us. It's about our customers. And mm -hmm. if we can, and so in that sense of, of approaching uh, your business or the world from a service point of view, it, it gives you a big competitive advantage over people who make it about themselves. But, but something oh, on, on what you just said that, that I think is interesting, and, and I'd imagine you probably are not the biggest fan of what's going on, is I think in the recent sort of tech ecosystem, we've started to put the, the founders and the, the heads almost as rock stars yes. and superstars. And I think yep. that, that's mm -hmm. led to a lot of ego yep. in the space. And, yep. and, and, and people are getting away from sort of, I, I mean, I, I, I'm in Denmark, so I think of you know human design-centered approaches and, and these types of things. and. And more and more entrepreneurs now, I think, because they've seen the Zuckerbergs and, and Steve Jobs and whatever, and that 
the superstars out of this are moving away from that. And I think they're, they're having this new sort of more personal me, me, me mentality. And I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like it's, it's not creating really good companies. And it, there's, especially now, I think, in the, the re recent economic cycle, there's a big bubble around tech. Poor people who said, oh, no, I can be the next the next tech superstar so, entrepreneur. So, yes, I, I don't <clears throat> disagree that. But I think of so much in life as being this pendulum phenomenon mm -hmm. that both elements are necessary for success but mm -hmm. you don't want to be at one extent of the extreme or the other mm -hmm. so if you're running a company you have a responsibility for leadership for that company okay. um, so I like to think of my org chart upside down at all times um, because I don't like to think of myself as the most important person in the business mm -hmm. Uh, I like to think of my customer as the most important person in my business. And so in a traditional org chart, you put the CEO at the top, you have the vice presidents, the managers, mm -hmm. the customer service person you hired yesterday. Where on that chart do you put the customer? Sure. By wow. definition, at the bottom of the chart, mm -hmm. talking to the customer service person mm -hmm. you hired yesterday. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you flip the chart upside down, you now have the customer at the top. The customer service person is the next most important person in that mm -hmm. business. Mm -hmm. The managers, the VPs, and my job is to make those guys, the rest of the team, successful. Yeah. Because it's their job to make our customers successful. Uh, and the problem with the rock star CEO is it messages the wrong thing internally but yet, your CEO has to articulate the vision, has to mm -hmm. keep everyone on the same path. So a CEO is still a CEO, no matter how self-effacing he might be. And that, and that pendulum, do you, must you take both ends of that pendulum? in that sense in, the, in that it goes backwards and forwards or is it you should just try and find that and that happy medium in, in between the two and that's where the balance really is uh, uh, yeah somewhere in there but uh but no i uh, f scott fitzgerald had this great line about the sign of a first class intelligence is the ability to keep two opposing thoughts in mind and retain the ability to function mm -hmm. so as a ceo you want to be a humble servant to your business and you want to be the visionary leader of your business. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Those are two different things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you have to do them both at the same time to be effective as, as the CEO. Fantastic. I would say it's an interesting point. Like, of course, people talk about, yes, customers first. Customers are really, really important. But you, by listening to you, Bob, it fundamentally was baked into every company that you had where you put the customer first. And, and it was trying to solve their issues or trying to sell them something that they, they needed or... So, so there is one theme in all the companies I've ever run, uh, and it, it relates back to, and I got this again from this sort of family culture, and, and is my family were big, um, small D Democrats. They believed in democracy uh, very fundamentally, uh, and they believe in freedom, and they believe in freedom of the individual. So, so when we get out of bed in the morning, our goal isn't to make a million bucks, it's to mm. make the world a better place. Mm. And in a free market democracy, the citizen and the consumer are the same person. So mm. you can solve societal problems in the marketplace mm. and the world will pay you for doing it. <laughs> Is this a great system <laughs> <Yes>. or what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I lost that. <laughs> I thought I'll go something else, but... Um, no, that, I mean, that, I think that's a really, really interesting... It's a really, really interesting thing because I think there's always this this sort of dynamic of, of 
you know, what kind of problems can the free market solve and do it and have the, the citizen as the consumer and, and what ones are being sort of overlooked by the free market. And, this, and I, I like what you're kind of saying from this. I like, I like your pendulum analogy because I think both are kind of going on is, is, yes, it solves a lot of things, but also there's a lot of these things that are overlooked if you kind of push too far to the extreme. 100%. Tragedy, mm -hmm. the commons yeah. type stuff and, yeah. and whatnot. And so, and, yeah, so what and, drives and, me and, nuts about our political yeah. system is the polarization of as if one ideology is correct and the other is incorrect. There, there must be one, one or the other as yeah. opposed to a... But, but it depends what you're trying to do. Yeah. If you're trying to, to impose policing on our society, you want a highly socialist system. Mm. You want those police to be answerable to the citizenry, mm -hmm. not to some for-profit corporation. I want to know that it, in the end, I can hold my elected representative accountable for the policeman pulling over my friend for no apparent reason. Mm -hmm. it, it just, it's, it, we need mm -hmm. that kind of transparency. We need true socialism in our policing mechanisms. But in my garbage collection, do I need socialism? <laughs> you know, can we not build yeah. a profit motive into collecting garbage and reward the garbage collectors for doing a good job of taking away our garbage? Uh, mm -hmm. So th there are different approaches to different things. Certainly technology works better by f giving bright, uh, well-educated people the opportunity to figure it out for themselves without very much regulation or oversight. Mm -hmm. Having said that, once you become the dominant player with half the world's population, depending on your technology, there probably is a need for regulation and oversight. Just because you can't play any game whether it's football mm -hmm. or whether it's business without a referee on the field. Because if you don't regulate, if you don't have a structure, then bad things happen. I Maybe. think also jumping oh. off your analogy, you also can't really play a game without an opponent. Yes. And, and if you become such a large player in industry, you don't have anyone to compete against. So there's not really a game here. And, and no. I feel like ultimately for a lot of companies that ends up to them essentially start to to de decay. Yes. The decay without the, the push of having an opponent to play against. Yes. We talked uh, about this a little bit earlier on with the EU and, mm -hmm. and their, their push into to cutting cutting the legs off of, pe of companies that have used data for their own gain for such a long time. I mean, maybe you want to weigh in on, on your thoughts on this, you know, seeing how the European Commission has levied large history-making fines or is it that data should be back in the hands of people or... So it, it, uh, I jumped across a little bit there, but I found yeah, a better no, no. question. So, so here's how I think of it. <laughs> so I go back to first principles in my world. You know, it's the old expression about to a man with a hammer, every problem mm. looks like a nail. Okay. <laughs> okay. So in my world, uh, free market uh, uh, businesses can solve every problem. They can't. Don't get yeah. me wrong. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, that's how my mind works. Mm -hmm. So when I see a problem, I, uh, such as uh, the proprietary software vendors had such a lock on their customers that their customers weren't able to select alternatives. Mm -hmm. So if you were using a word processor in the 1990s uh, and you wanted to use a competing word processor, the primary vendor of word processors, who will remain nameless, of course, <laughs> could write I, I think code. he might be our next guest, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> could write code that would make it difficult for you to use a competing uh, standard uh, or operate. Uh, but I looked at that uh, as, okay, so that is a problem. What's the answer to that problem? 
And it was a big part of when I first saw the open source movement. So mm -hmm. uh, when I was still in the equipment leasing business, I thought it was the stupidest thing I'd ever seen. Really? Because, <laughs> because I would talk to the engineers who were contributing to it, and they would say things like, well, it's from engineers according to their skill to engineers according to their need. If you know any Karl Marx, that'll sound familiar. <laughs> <laughs> and the Berlin Wall had just fallen. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure that's going to work. <laughs> you're, you're like, I just saw this fail in real time. So, <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> so two years later, so I'm watching this, and two years later, after I first saw this open source thing, uh, instead of going away, it had gotten better. And, and there were more people using it and more people saying nice things about it. <laughs> And my conclusion was, there's got to be something going on here that even the engineers who are writing the code don't fully understand. Yeah. So I stopped what I was doing, and I, I went on a little tour. I went up to Boston, met uh, Richard Stallman of the Free Software Foundation, mm. and went down to Washington, met Don Becker, who ran the Linux users group in Washington, oh, D.C. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, went out to California. Uh, actually, no. New Orleans, caught up with Linus Torvalds on his first or second trip to the U.S. And I would ask them, you know, what, what's going on with this stuff? Uh, and it wasn't until actually the trip to Washington, D.C., meeting Don Becker. And Don invited me back to uh, Goddard Space Flight Laboratories, where he is working, because he had just built a, uh, a supercomputer, and he had just unplugged a half a million dollar cray with a uh, Intel-based supercomputer that he had built, literally that was, you know, uh, four mini towers across, four mini towers up, wrapped in duct tape. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when you say literally built, he did well, literally build it. <laughs> he had fast Ethernet cards in all of these machines connected to each other. He was writing the Ethernet drivers, and he was using Linux to build a supercomputer, and his supercomputer was outperforming the Cray the <laughs> that they had bought two years earlier. Uh, and what year was this? Uh, this would have been 1995, early 95. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I, I turned to Don when I'm showing, he's showing me this. I go, Don, but when you write your device drivers and you give them away, <clears throat> why do you give them away? They're, they're very valuable technology, as you're showing me here. Um, and you're, you're writing these on company time, on Goddard time, right? And he goes, yeah. I say, so who's, who's authorizing you to, to write free software during the day as part of your day job and then give the software away? He goes, well, that's my boss, Thomas Sterling. I go, well, you know, this is 10 o'clock at night or something. I go, yeah, well, next time I come to D.C., you'll have to introduce me. He goes, oh, no. Uh, Dr. Sterling works stupid, stupider hours than I do. He's probably <laughs> still here. See <laughs> so you walk across to his. So we meet, we meet in an empty cafeteria in Goddard Space Flight Laboratory. And I get to ask Dr. I just imagine that flickering light in the exactly corner. Right. Like I get to ask Dr. Thomas Sterling, you know, wow. why he's giving away the software for free. And he, he turns to me and goes, Bob. Let me get this straight, because at this point, I was already selling Slackware and other Linuxes on CD. And he was saying, let me get this straight. Uh, you're right. We write software that might cost us $25,000, maybe $50,000, eh, maybe fully loaded, $100,000 to write. And we give it away for free. But all we get in return for doing that is a gigabyte worth of multitasking, multi-user operating system with a license that allows us to 
with complete source code and a license that allows us to put it on as many computers as we can put our hands on. Mm-hmm. And you're taking advantage of me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and nice. what, what he had articulated was a barter system. There actually was an economy behind this open source model. Yeah. And once I understood the economics of open source, I go, I might be able to bet my kids' college education. <laughs> <laughs> Did you bet the kids' college education fund oh, on it? Oh, thoroughly. <laughs> no, you, you kept doubling down. <laughs> <laughs> you know your wife loves you when. <laughs> she, she doesn't take the kids and move home with her mom when you're trying to build a business around selling free software. <laughs> How was that? How was that conversation? Like, I think when my wife tried to say the other day, she's like, I, I told someone that you're in tech barbecue doing something. I mean, that's about the far as she, yeah. she gets. So she, yeah. she works for the Comuna um, <laughs> in the social department with the social director and doing yeah. lots of different services. Either way, not very much part of it. But how does, how did you tell that to your wife? Like, you know, <laughs> and like, Back in that day, at that time as well, selling so- free software. <laughs> so, so fortunately, my wife has a very good sense of humor. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you know she does because she married me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and and she, she recognized that I had passions for things. And she knew that if I had a passion for something, I understood it and I cared about it, even if I was not capable or perhaps not yet capable of articulating where my passion for it came from. And of course, my passion for open source came from my customers. It came from all the engineers Mm -hmm. who, when they discovered that what we were doing was giving them a gigabyte worth of sophisticated Unix-like operating system uh, and giving it to them on a trust basis. Here it is. Here's the complete source code to it. And you can do whatever you want with it. Just don't steal it. Like, don't take it and wrap proprietary tools around it. Play the game according to the rules that you've inherited the software under. And these guys would kiss me on both cheeks. (laughs) They go, finally, a businessman who understands it. This is what we need as engineers. Do people not, was it not available at the time? Was no, this like a completely no, just no. new way of, of coming into yes. this? Where the, yeah. You kind of just blew yeah. their kids, minds at the same time. Kids like you two. How old are you guys? I'm 35. Okay, so you're kids. Still 35. In, in, my, world. Kids, sorry, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. in my world, you guys are kids. I'll also, I'm Asian. You, I look like this forever. No. You, don't, <laughs> you don't understand. There was a period of time where there was no open source software of any yeah. sort. Mm. And it was from 1965 to 1990. And what happened in 1965, prior to 65, all software was in effect free software. People just gave it away because there was a shortage of it. In 1965, Thomas Watson Jr. with IBM realized software was valuable. And now he had a corner on hardware and he he started only giving away the binaries of the source code. Mm -hmm. He quit giving away this, sorry, binaries of the software, not the source code of the software. And he invented, in 1965, the proprietary software industry. Mm. And what we realized with the advent of Linux and the whole open source and free software movement, uh, we realized this was an opportunity to solve an evolutionary dead end in technology. That for technology to work, everyone who works with the technology has to be able to work collaboratively. And you can't work collaboratively if you're not allowed to look inside the technology. No, but I think, no, 
going into that time, as you're saying it right, it's that, then what, what fascinates me is that you know you, you literally took that leap of faith that, that wasn't there beforehand, that no one else had really gone through that. That pro a few others yeah. before you as yeah, well, yeah. but you kind of just really ran with it. Is that what what you you aside from putting the customer first, what you deem as as being the you know the defining successes? Is that are the defining successes? Sorry. So, so the reason Red Hat was successful, and and all the other little Linux competitors that we were up against at the time, when we were one of those little Linux competitors, <laughs> was very much related to putting the customer first. Because our customers were the engineers. They understood that Linux was neither better, faster, or cheaper. Mm -hmm. It was the fact that it was open, that they got the source code, because the, our killer app was the internet itself. Mm -hmm. And as you know, there's no 1-800 internet. The internet is a collaborative uh, uh, technology. And you have to be able to make your servers work with your neighbor's servers to make the internet work. And if you don't have source code and a license that allows you to modify that source code, and if you have to call 1-800-INTERNET to solve those problems, a collaborative model simply doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And the reason you can send email reliably from your home computer here in Copenhagen to someone's home computer in Singapore without even thinking about it and without any cost is the collaborative nature of these internet tools. But yeah. can I ask you a question kind of around that? And, and I feel like this ties to something we were getting at before. I'd be really, really curious from on one side, and I like how we, we talk about these pendulums and kind of these two sides. On one side, you're this really strong businessman and whatnot, but on the other side, you're with these collaborative and especially internet tools. Like how does like net neutrality play into your thoughts and, yep. and how they're trying to put toll gates on the internet? Yep. And, and yep. Yep. that's what I was trying to lead on to earlier on, yeah. but we that we yeah, yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Which is exactly why I'm an early stage entrepreneur. <laughs> it's why I'm not still serving even on the board of Red Hat, is I don't do big businesses. Because I'm at the end of the day, I really should be marching with placards, you know, <laughs> in, in anti-establishment riots. Because that, that's my mindset. Uh, that, I hate... Could you I work at a corporation? Sorry, no. Yeah, I've, just... So one of the reasons I stepped aside and moved Matthew Zulik in as CEO is I found myself the day after we went public on the NASDAQ running a 400-person business, public corporation. I'd never worked for a company of 400 people. <laughs> much less managed From that point, you're like, oh no, what do okay. I do? Is that... and, and now I had all this capital at my disposal. <laughs> I didn't have to work for a living. But I never worked because I had to work. Mm -hmm. I, I worked mm -hmm. because I wanted to make the world a better place. And as a businessman, my skills in making the world a better place were building companies that solved social problems. But, but this is really funny because like our first guest of the day was talking about how on a, on a fundamental level, I just making this parallel in my head, I think it's really funny. On a fundamental level, entrepreneurs basically become entrepreneurs because they become unemployable. Um, because of their natures. And I yeah. think it's kind of really interesting yes. because more or less yeah. what you're basically saying is you more or less became unemployable in your own company that you started. I think that's yeah. amazing. Like yeah. that's such a super cool thing. Of, yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty good description. Of. Was it like instantly, was it you? You sat there 24 hours afterwards, you were on the stage, you pressed the bell, but then went, this isn't, I can't do this. This isn't for me. And I, or I don't want to do this rather than can't do this. It, that's exactly right. It, it was that I don't want to do it. I, I was curious enough and I, from a business background. So 
So I understood what it took to run a large business well. I just didn't want to do those. <laughs> You're like, I don't want anything to do with this. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I, I like the problem solving. I like figuring out uh, holes in the marketplace and how to serve the needs of that audience. Yeah. So at Lulu, I published a book on Red Hat. Mm -hmm. A really bad book, by the way, and I know it was a bad book because <laughs> this is the worst public, worst, well, yeah, emotional. For, for, for all, it sold twenty five thousand copies and and had exactly the impact we wanted, which was to get the Red Hat version of the open source story out there. Ah. Um, nonetheless, about two years after uh, we sold twenty five thousand copies of it, it was available on Amazon for ninety eight cents. Uh, down from $25 that it sold for originally. So I knew it was a bad book. The market, <laughs> the market told you, uh, this is it. Okay. But in the process of selling 25,000 books at $25 a book, you know, a market worth north of half a million dollars, guess how much the author earned of that money? Because I went through a traditional publisher. $2,362, and no, I'm not bitter and twisted. <laughs> but what I realized with that was uh, that the publishing industry was broken for certain markets. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. for the author who was, who was writing valuable information for small markets, the publishers were never going to publish them because my publisher didn't think 25,000 copies was really that interesting. That was a modest success. It wasn't a great success yeah. for him. So despite the book earning half a million dollars worth of, of top line revenue, mm -hmm. uh, the model didn't work for the author. Well. And so Lu what Lulu does is it empowers the authors exactly the same way open source software empowers the engineer, where now the author can bring his book directly to market, whether the the publishers don't want it because they already have one of mm -hmm. those books or they think the market's too small or for whatever reason they might reject your book. Those are two very different businesses. Yes. For one. Mm. Was that on purpose or was no. that on or just no, following the a, passion again? There's what? a theme to it. It's the same theme as, as my hat, uh, which is the Hamilton Tiger Cats yeah. of the <laughs> Canadian Gridiron Football League. Uh, or for that matter, the Hamilton Forge of the new Canadian Premier Soccer League, uh -huh. which was just launched this year. There you go. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, it's all about community. It, it's all about that opportunity to see, to look customers in the eye. And it was the fun bit of the mm -hmm. Red Hat one. We didn't have customers. We had fans. Mm -hmm. we, we had people who bought our software, the, the shrink-wrapped version of Red Hat back in... 98, we went to visit uh, Netscape uh, when Netscape was a big corporation. Yeah. Um, Back when they had offices and power. Yeah. yeah. No, no. Like, they, they were seriously powerful yeah. in 97. Yeah. I mean, they were, yeah, uh, one of the big players. Uh, we went to visit them and we were walking through their development lab, and every second cube had a Red Hat Linux box. The interesting thing about it is they were all in the original shrink wrap. <laughs> so what they had done is they had downloaded Red Hat off the internet for free and they were using it and then they felt guilty about it and they really liked what we were doing. So they'd go to their purchasing <laughs> officer. They say, "Ooh, I need to buy a license of Red Hat for my computer. They get the purchasing officer to send us 50 bucks for a copy of Red Hat and they, they would put it you on their, their shelf. This is a token Because amount. they were fans of ours. They wanted to see us succeed so badly. 
exactly. it was just great fun. And being in sports, if you mm -hmm. run your sports team for the right reasons, if it's mm -hmm. not about you, if it's about your fans, mm -hmm. and I got into it, long story, I'm from Hamilton, Ontario. Okay. Um, my older brother, Michael, who had learning disabilities, was the world's biggest Hamilton Tiger Cat fan. Mm -hmm. He invested in Red Hat uh, with a little friends, friends and family round we did uh, when we were uh, starving to death. <laughs> um, fast forward, uh, so that would have been 95, early 95. Uh, 99, Red Hat goes public. And now my parents, who used to worry about my older brother with his learning disabilities, my father becomes his money manager, <laughs> which was a really cute story. As a role, right? That he it, has to be the money manager because of the, what was made on the investments through yeah, Red Hat. Yeah, because Michael has so much money suddenly uh, from his investment. <laughs> can, but, I, can I ask you a question sure. around that? I mean, did that work out well? Because there's so many situations like that where that happens, where it just ends it terribly. Worked out, it worked out brilliantly. And buy, <laughs> buy me a beer, I'll tell you some lovely, funny stories. Yeah. The, the sad bit to this story, though, is Michael had had melanoma cancer 15 years earlier, okay. and it came back and killed him in 2002. Okay. Uh, so he didn't have a family. So my brother, David, and I uh, inherited Michael's money, and we had the conversation, neither of us needed the money. What do we do with Michael's money to honor his memory? Mm -hmm. David put it into a theater in Toronto because Michael loved live performances of any sort. I'm casting about, I don't know what to do with the money. <laughs> Michael loved to fish. Do I give so, it to Bass? So your other brother went, he, I really knew my other brother. He really loved doing yeah. this. I'm yeah. going to do this. Yeah. And you go, I really love my brother too. What do I do now? <laughs> so here's the cute story on it, um, which is that... Uh, uh, as I say, Michael was the world's great Thai cat fan. Uh, a year later, uh, the, Michael's estate settles. I get this whopping great check. Literally the same week, I get a note from a friend in Hamilton uh, with a link to the front page of the local newspaper about the Hamilton Tiger Cats going bankrupt. And I couldn't let the team and my older brother, the team's biggest fan, pass away at the same time. I and do that's wonder, how like, I got involved in sports. I just, I do wonder, like, you know, how these, these, the, you hear things are going bankrupt, then all of a sudden there's someone that comes in that, that rescues the club. You found it out by just randomly going to the local newspaper and it was on the front page of the local newspaper. It, it wasn't like protracted long deals going yeah. out, like, you know, we're going to so take the money from the club as much as possible. You just literally like, I need something and oh. opportunity there you go i, I also, like, I also like, like to that, think that it, no. it kind of sounds like i like to think but i, I mean this is, might be too much of a exaggeration that essentially your brother was supporting the entire team and without him in the picture they just immediately went bankrupt is that no like with, within a year <laughs> yeah, with, without without the money he was he the only support? <laughs> it's, it's the other way around <laughs> after i rescued the team yeah. michael's in effect michael's money is supporting the team yeah, yeah. And i tell the team the story they've absolutely embraced the story there's 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 now a, a win for Michael poster in the locker room of the Titans. <laughs> uh, so it's a very cute project. Going into sports now then. Yep. So the, the, the industry of sports. Yep. Again, very different from the two other parts that you, the parts that you kind of follow through. Yes. Is it for, I guessing the passion really comes and follows through, um, but, you know, is it as glamorous as everyone else goes for, Bob, or is it? No, 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 no. <laughs> these, these, are, these are not NFL teams yes. that are worth a, how many billions of dollars. Yet. Uh, thank you. you that, that's, that's exactly our mission. Um, 
but it is fun because I get to channel my six-year-old self because I was a Thai cat fan <laughs> when I was 12. Uh, we used to play in our backyard, you know, I'd, uh, uh, I would be the star quarterback and my cousin was the star receiver, vice versa. <laughs> okay. When I 12, I realized I actually was born with two left feet and no, I wasn't going to play for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. <laughs> so and, don't follow your passion. So it, it, it was very cute to find myself as a, whatever I was at the time, mm. a 55 year old, uh, where I could play for the team. I could actually bring some value to my favorite uh, gridiron football team. I have a question around this, and, and knowing who you are, are you bringing the same customer-focused approach to the team itself? And 100%. Like, and helping them? 100%. And, and, the reason, and what, yeah. what kind of things are you doing like, to so them the, to get them more customer-focused? Yeah, so the reason the team went from you know, half filling its stadium to regularly where, where the stadium is full is because we don't think of ourselves as being in the football business. We mm -hmm. think of ourselves as being in the community service entertainment business. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. And if every three-year-old or five-year-old who comes into our stadium has the experience of connecting mm -hmm. with their neighbors and, and, you know, seeing something that their parents care about and seeing their parents have fun with their neighbors, it, it just creates a sense of community in our community in Hamilton that is, it's just valuable. It's important. Well, our, our society is too polarized. We need things that bring us together, not take us apart. And sports is one of those things that, that help us do that. But you also went down the route of bringing football or soccer into the, so, so yes, the region as so, well. I mean, that's so my, as if it's not hard enough taking a you know a, a sports team that you, you go for a whole new sport. Get, going back to to a man with a hammer. Every <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, we were trying to figure out how to make money uh, in our stadium in Hamilton, and we realized running a gridiron football team is about ten really entertainment events. We're putting on 10 three-hour pieces of entertainment mm -hmm. every year. But hold on, the stadium is there 365 days of the year, oh. not mm -hmm. counting Canadian winters, so <laughs> maybe 200 so, days. Wait, yeah, but but, but do, you, do you not turn it into like an ice rink during the winter? Uh, we should. <laughs> but no, I, we one was pretty yeah. sure that the Canada has a few of those anyway. Yeah. So... So yeah, so we needed a soccer team. There wasn't a Canadian uh, professional soccer league, so we had to help organize the soccer league. Otherwise, <laughs> we were going to have a single team league. Yeah, <laughs> with all the benefits, we'd win the the cup every year. But you'd also be relegated every year. Anyway, so this is the first year of the Canadian Premier League, uh, and it's going very well for us. And and uh, the. Uh, organizations who are helping are all the big European organizations because really? they understand the opportunity. So it, it's people like Macron, the big European mm -hmm. jersey makers, yep. uh, the, the guys like um, Media Pro, the big Spanish broadcasters, yep. uh, who are stepping up to help us build the Canadian Premier League into a, a very successful professional Fantastic. soccer league. Well, I, I also love that ethos of where you kind of just turn it on the head. You know, you see these stadiums in England, especially. There's a lot more bankruptcies going on now within sports teams than ever beforehand. And you see half empty yep. seat, you know, seats everywhere. And you've gone from half empty to full. Yeah. You know, it's very tough to do. It's, yep. you know, going from empty to, to some is okay. Yep. But is it really that 
turning it on the head and making it a community place uh, and, and really giving it back to the fans. It has Is that to what you be. Did? It has to be. The constant theme... A fellow called Scott Mitchell, who runs the uh, the sports uh, group for me, is, is first class at this. Whenever his sales guys even hint that it's easier to sell tickets when the team's winning than losing, <laughs> he basically hits them with a baseball bat. <laughs> <laughs> Mixing sports <laughs> metaphors. Is say, yeah. uh, That's a team you don't have yet. Bob. Is that that, yeah. exactly. <laughs> uh, because we're not allowed to think in terms of winning or losing. We're only allowed to think in the quality of the entertainment, the no. quality mm, of the no. customer experience, when they come to our uh, to our stadium, that, fantastic. Do you, yeah. do you think that's been the driving driving factor? It's always um, the customer. It's always the customer. It's not about you, as my it, wife yeah. would say. <laughs> yeah. It's not about you. It's the customer. The answer to everything is if the customer. If you build together. that into your culture, it gives you such a competitive advantage in open source. The red the reason Red Hat did well, and our are uh, the other players who were equally small missed it is they were not paying as much attention to what value the core customers were getting out of open source. Yeah. They were thinking it was better, faster, cheaper software, and it wasn't. It was yeah. control over the technology they were building that they were given for the very first time. And that's what they loved about the Red Hat ethos, and that's what I love about Matthew Zulik and James Whitehead. They, they got it, and to this day, Red Hat gives away all of its, all the software Red Hat distributes, it distributes for free. Even the ideologues, the Richard Stallmans, who, would, who was highly suspicious of us, as particularly after our success, because he would, he would go, well, you're a for-profit company, you're, you're just going to you know, make a lot of money and stab us in the back. It's only a matter of time. <laughs> and I go, no, no, Richard, you've, you've got it backwards. You're the one I can't trust because you're an ideologue. One day you make wake up and realize free software isn't all it was cracked up to be and you change your mind. <laughs> my whole business model, my customers trust me because it is free software. Um, I am more committed to free software than you are. Fantastic. Fantastic. It's I'm, been I'm, a fascinating session. Are, are, do we have to go? Oh, I think we'll soon we have to wrap up. Unfortunately, Alex, I know. We have have a, a little idea. <laughs> yeah. We just want the break. Can I ask you one thing since, since we're talking about this before we, and I think I, oh, I didn't finish. We're still, I'm still recording. Um, but I'll finish that. I think before we go off, could you, since you're so focused on the customer, like what are the insights about customers that you'd like to, to share with, with people and, and how they can sort yeah. of think of like, for people out there, just what are insights you'd share? What, what, you know, for new entrepreneurs that are trying to think about it, what should they know about customers, um, okay. et cetera, et cetera. And, and, okay. Just a couple of quick rules. Yeah. Uh, difference between users and customers. Customers give you money. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Don't confuse the two. I love my users. That's the, the litmus test, right? Yes. I, I love my users. I can turn users into customers, but it's not about my users. It's about my customers. Mm -hmm. They give me money. The other thing is there's no such thing as, as your customer. They come in all shapes and sizes. So you have to put them in compartments. And even then you have to be a little careful. Mm -hmm. Because if you think that your customer is buying your product for the same reason every time, you're very, you know, that you're both missing an opportunity and you're mistaken because every customer learns about your product in a different way, is using your product in a different way. Hell, their businesses are all different. Yeah. Um, 
So put your customers as well as you can into segments and then target your marketing and your customer service for that group of customers in that segment. Because if you do a scattergun approach and you try and be all things to all customers, you won't be very good to any of them. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's your two rules on customers. I, I think that's a really, really great place to stop. I uh, agree. Yeah. Bob Young's rules for, for appreciating your customers and, and doing it and running three awesome businesses. I think that, that, that no, no, there, there's more than that. I can <laughs> tell you about query. We'll have to, <laughs> yeah. we'll have to get you back on uh, again. No, no, I, I think a full many, episode. many times. Well, I mean, we've more or less done a full episode almost. Uh, we've done about 45 minutes. But uh, no, I want you back as many times as we can get you in, <laughs> in the same places. Pleasure to chat to you guys. You guys clearly, did, you've done this before. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> this isn't our first time, though, yeah. first time live like this. This morning, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bob, thank you right, very yeah. much for coming thank on. Thank you so much, we Bob. appreciate it again. Great pleasure. Thanks. Thanks again to the marvellous Bob Young and Alex for joining us. We are really touched by Bob's character and seemingly how far out of his way he's willing to go for the people and community he loves. This was the first episode of the Global Game Changers podcast and a great example of the format to expect. Next week, we get to share the story of Patrick Lee and how Rotten Tomatoes came to life. If you got this far, we recommend you take a moment and hit subscribe to get the latest releases direct to your device. Until next time, I'm James Digby, and you've been listening to the Global Game Changers podcast by Startup 42 Media.